One of my favorite movies to watch, and you may like it. No, not Star Wars. We're not talking about Star Wars this morning, though we could if we wanted to. One of my favorite movies to watch, and maybe it's a guilty pleasure, maybe it's not. It's just a fun action, adventure, comedy, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Anybody else like that movie? Anybody else? Yes, we've got some people. Brenda and I were talking in the office earlier this week, and it's one of our favorites, so we share that. That's, that was great. And that movie has so many great moments in it, but there's one that I want us to focus in on. If you don't know the movie, it's Indiana Jones and his dad, Dr. Jones Sr., on a quest to find the Holy Grail. And Dr. Jones Sr. has this grail diary that he has all the different years of study and meticulous work to be able to guide them to the right place to get this treasure. And, in, and, in, and over, the, over the process of their adventure, his diary was stolen from him by the Nazis. This movie is set in the 1930s, the mid to late 1930s. I believe it's 1936. And so they have their run-ins with the Nazis and they have all their issues and they recognize that they have to go and get this diary from the Nazis and, and use it to be able to go find their treasure. But this diary is located in Berlin, Germany. In the lion's den was the words in the movie. And so Indiana Jones and his father bravely set out to go to Berlin to take back the diary. As they go, they are met with a horrible sight. It is night. There is tons of people screaming, celebrating, cheering as they see and hear several things around them. One of the most blatant things you can see is ample parades of Nazi signs and soldiers marching through the streets and they're cheering them on. There is a anthem, a national anthem from the Nazi party that is playing over all of this as people are cheering and celebrating and, and, and taking joy in, in the wickedness of this country. And one of the most horrific parts of all of it is that it was during what was known as a ceremonial book burning where Nazi officials, and they're not the only ones that have done this, but they found books from Jewish authors, uh, Orthodox Christian authors, different religions, different peoples, peoples that disagreed with their vision of the world. They took their books in mass mobs and hurled them into a collective bonfire and burned the books. Imagine two professors watching that. Just seeing the, the utter wickedness in front of them, the frustration, the anger, the complex emotions. And they stand next to each other and Dr. Jones Sr. utters very memorable lines. He says, my son, we are pilgrims in an unholy land. I want us to focus on that phrasing for this morning. Because for many Christians, there is, there is a connection, a, 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 a sympathy with that expression. We are pilgrims in an unholy land. And I want to stop for a moment and, and recognize that this message is not going to be 
calling out different people groups, calling out different opinions, calling out different things that I or we may not be too happy about. If you want that, that is not going to happen this morning. I want to focus on the fact that as Christians, as believers in God, who've given their life to Jesus, we live in a fallen and sinful world with so many manifestations of a fallen and sinful world every second of every day. Wherever we go, whatever media outlet you go to, whatever person you talk to, it doesn't take long to talk about evil in this world. We are pilgrims in an unholy land. And so the question we necessarily need to ask is how are we to live in this world? God has given us promises. One day he will deliver us. Yes, amen, come Lord Jesus. But in the moment, in this moment, how are we to live in this world as pilgrims in an unholy land? If we are to go back to Indiana Jones and take the wisdom of this movie, and there's a part of us, there's a part of, our, of ourselves that enjoys its wisdom. The solution of living as pilgrims in an unholy land is to fight back, is to ride on a horse alongside of a tank, is to be chased away from, from soldiers on speeder bikes and knocking them off onto the side of the road or having crazy big explosions and turning around and looking at it with a mere snicker and laugh as somebody dies? Is that how we're to live? There's a part of us that wants to. But is that what God wants us to do? I pose that question, and I believe that this passage gives us some insight into that question, the passage we're going to be studying today. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. As you're turning there, allow me to catch you up. We've been going through 1 Peter, we have been, and one of the things that we've been studying from it, and you've heard it enough times, I need you to help me say it. We are learning about holiness in the midst of... We are learning about holiness in the midst of... Holiness in the midst of... Say it three times, it's in your short-term memory. Holiness in the midst of suffering. Holiness, God's standard for us. God's uniqueness as, as being all-powerful, all-good, all-wise, all-loving, mixed with suffering, the bitter realities of living in a world that is imperfect, evil, and has many, many manifestations of wickedness. The way for us to grow in our holiness, grow closer to God, is through the fire of suffering. We've seen this extensively in this book. And with that comes very many difficult situations to navigate through. Over the past three messages that we've heard on 1 Peter, we've heard about some very difficult, challenging truths. Specifically on the topic of submission. Now, I don't have enough time to summarize those messages for you. 
But the three messages talked about submitting to all governing authorities, talked about slaves and submission to their masters and wives and submission to their husbands. I, can't have the t- I don't have the time to summarize, so if you wish, go back to those messages and listen to them. I believe that they would be beneficial to handling some of those complicated questions. We have Facebook and we have podcasts and we have the whole thing for you to go back to. But that's our context, jumping off of that, some of those specific ethical questions. And then we get to this point where this passage, and I'm just going to read the passage in its entirety for us, broadens out the picture a little bit and stops focusing on nitty-gritty individual situations and expands to a place that we are all privy to expands to a situation and experience that we all have on a day-to-day basis. Allow me to read you the passage. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. We're going to stop there in the middle of that sentence. We're ending at kind of a weird point. This is a very intertwined section of Scripture from chapter 3, verses 8, all the way up to chapter 4. You could preach a message on all of it. It's all connected together, but that's a lot to cover, and so we wanted to break it down. It's kind of weird how we're trying to figure out how to break it down. This was the best to our ability. But here, as I mentioned, we go from the nitty-gritty individual situations that you may say, I'm not, that doesn't affect me. I may not be a part of that difficult situation. But then Peter says, I'm going to take it back, and I'm going to expand it for something all of us as believers in Jesus, have to follow or are challenged to follow on almost a daily basis, starting out in verses 8 and 9. I'm going to split them, go verse by verse, starting in verse 8. It says, finally, all of you, you being the readers of the letter. First Peter was written to several churches within the, within the Asia Minor region, which would be modern-day Turkey. And there's Christians from all sorts of different places. And so all of you is Christians. He's focusing it in-house, in the body of Christ. And what does he say? Have a unity of mind. Have sympathy. Have a brotherly love. Have a tender heart. Have a humble mind. 
He focuses in on the body first. I, it's kind of hard sometimes to preach some of these messages. I'm going to give a very unprofessional term for some of these messages, and Brenda might laugh at me a little bit because she seemed to give hesitations for me calling it this, but this is what I would call a do-do and a don't-do passage. It's a lot of do this, do that, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. It's, it's, it, it almost feels like, like a parent or somebody is nagging you to just, just do it, just do it, just do it. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to do. This is not it. This is not, it's black and white. It's very, it, 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 it's, it's, it's hard to figure out how to speak on that. It's hard to figure out how to apply that other than, well, just do it. But let's take a look at these expressions. What are we supposed to be doing? And notice again, this focuses in on the body of Christ. We've heard messages in the past on unity. I feel like in a post-COVID world, unity has been a major conversation within the church, and that's a good thing. A few months ago, we heard a message from John Fund, one of my very good friends, and we appreciate that. And this says nothing against that, so John, well done in your message. Have a unity of mind. Have a sympathy for each other. Have a love for each other like family. Have a tender heart. Have a humbled mind. These are not very aggressive character traits. Nobody looks at an action hero in a movie and says, Man, they are awesome. They are sympathetic. It's not, these are, these, are, these are virtues that are good, but they're not popular. These are virtues that everybody can recognize and say, yeah, those are good, but they're not, they don't, they don't, they don't have kind of that zing to them, you know? But recognize that after verse 8, we get to verse 9, and Peter has a switch here, where after he talks about how people in the body should act, he focuses on, I think he turns it to talking about how people in the body should act with non-Christians in a sinful world, as pilgrims in an unholy land. Do not, there's the do not part of the do-do and do not passage, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Something to recognize here is that if we ever, if we ever want to live well in a world that does not believe in God, we have to first learn how to live well with people that already do believe in God. If the body of Christ cannot get along together and love each other and be sympathetic towards each other and have a tender heart towards each other and have a unity of mind towards each other? How in the world are we going to do it with somebody that doesn't believe in what we believe or may even directly not like us for what we believe, not like you for what you believe? This time, this gathering of the body, this gathering of believers and the, the family issues that come from family coming together, they're all in some ways a, not a practice, I don't want to call it a practice, but they're a staging ground, they're a foundation. If you are a believer in Jesus today, you have the Spirit of God inside of you, and we praise God for that, but you have the same Spirit of God inside of you that another believer has, whether you like them or not. 
and that the others believers have, or maybe even people in a different denominational faith but still believe in the gospel. If we can't get along here, how are we going to do anything out there? It's a very necessary question to ask. Peter focuses afterwards, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Let's talk about blessing for a while. Let's talk about it for a little bit here. The word bless is swamped in what I'm calling Christianese language. We say bless for a lot of different reasons. And even outside of the church, people outside of the church, whether you believe in God or not, you've heard somebody say, bless, or, or bless you when you sneeze, for example. Bless you. In churches, they have blessings offerings where we might donate certain finances to give towards a ministry or to a person. When your southern grandma hears something that she may not directly be in favor with, she'll say, bless your heart. The word bless can have multitude different definitions. What's going on with this word? Allow me to teach you a Greek word this morning. Actually, I'm going to do two, but we'll start with one for now. The word here is called eulagia. Say eulagia. Eulagia. You know a little bit of Greek. Congratulations. But that word is where we get the modern word today for eulogy. Eulogy. If you're in a funeral... Or if you go to a funeral and you hear somebody get up and share stories of somebody who has passed there giving a funeral, eulogy. And when you hear a eulogy in a funeral, you hear somebody speaking very well of the person who has passed, sharing wonderful stories, sharing amazing things about that person's Life, beautiful things, things that many times will move the person sharing it to tears. I'm sure there's a fair amount of us that have been brought to tears by the love and beauty that is communicated through eulogies. I want us to focus on that type of a blessing and make the suggestion that that is what Peter is commanding believers, Christians, to say, to speak, to bless people who are evil or reviling towards you. Now that's hard. I think that if I were to go into any church and say, you're supposed to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, a majority of people would say that I agree with that. Jesus said it after all. It's hard to disagree with that. I think that that's very common knowledge. But we have ways that, though we may say that, we may know that in our head, our actions or the things we say or the things that we think might point us in a different direction in our application. Yes, I know I'm supposed to love my enemy, but could you believe what they did? What is wrong with them? But I, I got to love them. I just don't like that person. But you know what? They're my enemy and I got to pray for them and, you know, I'm going to do that. Well, do not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless. Have a level of complete, what, what is the word that I used here? A complete verbal blessing speaking well of somebody to a degree that in our modern understanding of the Greek word, eulagia, moves you 
to tears. That's a good challenge for this morning. Think of somebody that may pay evil to you or reviling to you. Are you able to say nothing but good things about them? Speak well on their behalf. I'm not saying, disagree, I'm not saying agree with them. I'm not saying that you got to, you know, I'm not doing that. But if we can't speak well of people that repay evil towards us in this sinful world, then we are falling short. And not only falling short because it sounds like the right thing to do, but falling short because it's what Jesus did. Notice the wording here. Do not pay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. If you take a moment and look back at chapter 2, verse 23, this is going through the context. The context of this is, is going through some of the things that Jesus went through on the cross. I'll start at verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Notice the connection there, the parallel, or just the repetition. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. These were the actions of Jesus, and these are the actions that Jesus commands us to follow as pilgrims in an unholy land. That's our first section of this passage. Continuing on. We bless, for to this we were called that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 10. I'm going to focus on verses 10 through 12 at this point. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you recognize in your Bible, depending on how it's printed, printed, Verses 8 through 9 are in a nice, neat paragraph, whereas verses 10 through 12 are a little bit more in what looks like some sort of stanza or poetic sort of structuring. That's because Peter here is quoting from the Old Testament, specifically the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 34. Your Bibles might say it towards the bottom on the little bitty scratching on the bottom. Psalm 34, 12 through 16. Peter is being a good student of the scriptures and using scripture to interpret scripture. Well done, Peter. But there's something more we have to recognize about this passage. Not just this passage, but who wrote it and why they wrote it. Psalm 34 is a psalm that many of us are, might be familiar with. If we're not, we're familiar with a song adaptation of it. We sing it many times here at Calvary. It's from the, the, the wonderful Shane and Shane authors. It's the magnify the Lord in me. Come exalt his name forever. I'm not good at singing, so I'm not going to be able to. I'm definitely not doing the high part. I'll leave that to Matt Lawson. But... I appreciate you. Um, but in this psalm, this psalm was written by David, King David. And it was specifically written in a very difficult part of his life where he did something very, very odd. 
It's based on a story found in 1 Samuel 21, 12 through 15. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'm going to explain it in a moment, but you can if you want extra points. Go for it. But in that passage, David is still in full flight running from King Saul who is trying to kill him. And so he finds no sanctuary in the land of Israel. And so he leaves the land of Israel to go to the land of the Philistines. Anybody who's been to a Sunday school or a kids program knows that the Philistines were God's enemy, or were the Israelites' enemies in the Old Testament. David and Goliath, all those sorts of stories. The Philistines were the ungodly neighbors that lived right next door to the Israelites who had ungodly false gods that did horrible things to people. Not really great. These were enemies to God's nation. And David has to go there for sanctuary. Think about that for a moment. But when he goes, the Philistines begin to recognize him. And they say, hey, isn't that David? Didn't that guy? Don't, you, don't the Israelites have a thing where Saul has killed his thousands and David is tens of thousands? Didn't, didn't this guy kill your brother? Looking at his Philistine friend. That makes David very nervous. And so David did what any logical person would do in this situation. He pretended to go insane. The scriptures say that he was literally foaming at the mouth and spit was running down his beard. It's kind of, it's gross, but he was pretending to be a madman, pretending to go mentally insane so that the king of the Philistines in that city-state called Gath said, I got enough crazy people to deal with. Get this guy out of here. David apparently got that experience, was inspired by it, and decided to write a psalm. But in this psalm, Psalm 34, it is talking about God working in difficult places. Though our enemies are surrounding us, God is working. God is protecting. God is good. And the more we take a moment and think, this was in many ways a physical manifestation of the the spiritual reality that we feel as pilgrims in an unholy land. And if we take another step back and look at the Old Testament as a whole, there's a lot of examples of pilgrims in an unholy land. Sojourners. Think of Abraham leaving his nation, going to another place. Think of Moses leaving Egypt, being wandering in the wilderness. David leaving Israel. Ruth leaving Moab, going to a a place that she's never been. Esther, the Queen Esther of Persia. She's in Persia for crying out loud. The Old Testament is full of examples of pilgrims in an unholy land. And we would do well to learn from them. Verses 10 through 12. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. I think that's everybody. Whether you're Christian or not this morning, I think all of us would desire that on some level. Well, that's good, but how do we do that? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Notice the connection. It almost feels like it's a direct proof of what Peter is saying. We don't fight fire with fire. We don't fight evil with evil. We don't fight sin with sin. But on the contrary, bless. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. 
do good. Allow me to make the suggestion that though we are called to do good, there's a greater standard that God has called us to, and we find that in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Anybody can do good things. Anybody can. We're entering the holiday season. We're getting closer to Christmas. Thanksgiving is next week. It snuck up on me. I don't know if it snuck up on you. But the holiday season is coming up. Soon we're going to see Salvation Army red jars and the bells ringing. We're going to hear about people donating. And, and, and this, is almost, this is a time in, our, in the year where many people in our culture feel a need to do good things. Feel a need to do good things, to be a little bit extra generous, to be a little bit extra caring, to be a little bit extra loving, to do good things. And that's a good, that is a good thing. I will very clearly say that. Give your change and more to the Salvation Army. Donate to the Haven of Rest. You know, volunteer. Do all those things. Those are good things. But in the grand scheme of things, it's relatively easy to do good. It's very difficult to do good and to be righteous. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to the prayers of the righteous. We all can do good, but none of us can be righteous. That is, without believing in the blood of Jesus who died for our sins. There's a greater calling here than just going out and and serving at your local homeless shelter, though please, please do so. But do so putting your full faith and belief in Jesus Christ who died for your sins and changing your, who is changing your life and showing you how to live for his honor and glory and not by any of our notoriety. Do good and be righteous. If we continue on, we get to verses 13 and 14. And here's where perhaps some disagreement might come up. You may be sitting there and saying, okay, so we're supposed to treat people well that treat us poorly. You're supposed to bless people who may not bless you. And we've been hearing a lot about submitting to people, submitting to governing authorities and, and husbands and wives and slaves and masters and all this sort of stuff. This all sounds, this doesn't sound like it's going to work. There may be some people in this room who are hearing this and are genuinely saying, this doesn't, this, this doesn't sound like it's going to work. If I, if I just sit there and, and speak well of somebody or if I'm just in submission, then, then, then what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my children? It's a very good question. What is going to happen if we decide to not repay evil with evil or reviling for reviling? What if we don't go the route of Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? Thirteen and fourteen seem to make it very clear that suffering does happen. That there is a cost. That it won't feel good. That it may not be pretty. It wasn't pretty for the first Christians reading this. 
It definitely was not pretty to a whole degree that we may never understand. But I think that ups the scale there. And I think that shows the gravity of the situation and the necessity of our response in the ways that the scriptures are pointing us to. And, and Peter, I think, anticipated some of these hesitations because he puts this in right at this time. He says in 13 and 14, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. There's that word again, blessed. Are you ready for your second Greek word of the day? The first one was eulogia, a spoken word of speaking well of somebody. This is a different word for blessed. This is the Greek word makarios. Say makarios. There you go. You learned two Greek words today. Congratulations. But this is the same word for blessing or blessed that Jesus uses on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed is all the different, all the different blessed be. And this, while eulogia has a speaking well of blessing, this contains a much different blessing. This word was connected back to certain words that were used when God gave a spiritual power to another person. Or that people gave a spiritual blessing to others. This is the same word that would have been used when Abraham blessed Isaac. When Isaac blessed Jacob. When Samuel blessed David. When Jesus blessed the children. Different Greek words. But in English, they're the same thing. I think what Peter is trying to communicate to us is that if we do choose to go the hard route, if we do choose to not repay evil with evil or reviling for reviling, then God is going to be giving us a specific blessing along with that. What does that mean? I think in many ways that means that we are not alone in our suffering. But one of the blessings that God gives us is his son, is God himself, Jesus Christ, so that when we go through evils as pilgrims in an unholy land, we are not alone. And nothing could be done that has not already been done to the son of God on the cross. When he paid for your sins, and for mine. As I said, we're coming up on the holiday season and we're approaching the Christmas season, the Advent season, the time where we recognize a specific time in the year of God becoming flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. I would argue that's one of the greatest blessings. That's the blessing that God is talking about here, that Peter is trying to communicate. He's saying, hey, that suffering, it may happen. Those difficulties, if you choose to live by God's standards, they may happen. They probably will happen. But you will have God on your side. Not only is he there as your, as he's not just some personal cheerleader that's sitting there on your side saying, yeah, go you. 
but he is also using those sufferings to bring eventual good for his kingdom, for his honor, for his glory. And that is what we are called to as believers. Lessen ourselves and increase God. Advance the kingdom. This is kingdom building work. There is a purpose in the pain that happens in this life. There is always a purpose. God works through our sufferings. They have a specific point. And it does involve sacrifice. I get that. And that's hard. But if we are to believe in what the scriptures say, we are to believe that we are not alone when we go through difficulties, when we will go through difficulties, or when we have gone through difficulties. And that's going to continue because God is with us. In closing, when we looked at the wisdom of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, how are we to operate as pilgrims in an unholy land? That does it involve horseback riding next to tanks and fighting Nazis and looking really cool? I don't think so. Should we take joy in those things? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think so. It feels weak. It doesn't feel like the strong thing to do. But is it not what Jesus did? And if it was Jesus' actions, was it not the strongest thing we could do? How are we supposed to live as pilgrims in an unholy land? I would say we are to bless. Why? Because you have already been blessed. Bless because you have been blessed. We have been given the blessings that God has provided through believing in his son, giving us a strength, wisdom, and ability to traverse the difficulties in life and to bless people that may not like you, to speak well of in a world of sin and darkness, to be completely countercultural in a pluralized world. And I don't say countercultural flippantly or, light, or lightly. No one is expecting this. We live in a world of fighting, of disagreements, of arguing, of pluralizing. Rigid battlefield lines between worldviews, people, whatever. We have the chance to be different. When the whole world doesn't, we can bless because God has blessed us.